Hello, I'm Catherine Bray, saw fan, and trapped with me in a house rapidly filling with a deadly nerve agent are fellow saw fans Anna Bogotskaya and Charlie Shackleton. This is Seeing Saw, the official Spiral podcast. Welcome, Anna. I'm so excited. Alongside my Saw fandom, I'm also a writer and co-founder of the Horror Collective, The Final Girls. Fantastic. And Charlie? Hello. I am a documentary filmmaker and occasional film critic. And yes, my credential for being here is that I've seen all of these films an absolutely ungodly number of times. So for this podcast, we are re-watching every movie in the Saw franchise and counting down to the release of Spiral, the latest and potentially greatest chapter in the Book of Saw, out May 14th or May 17th if you're in the UK. That's starring Chris Rock, Samuel L. Jackson, Max Minghella, Marisol Nichols and a whole host of other great people. But this week, we're returning to play the next of Jigsaw's games with the first sequel in the series, 2005's Saw 2. There will be blood, there will be guts, a man getting cooked in a big oven and there will be spoilers. Obviously, it's a Saw podcast. If you're new to the franchise, we'd suggest watching the relevant film first, then listening to the episode. Anna, before we get waist deep in a pit of needles, what is it that has kept you coming back to the Saw franchise as a whole? Honestly, Jigsaw. The Jigsaw. man himself, the man, the man himself. Because with Saw 1, I wanted to know more about Jigsaw. His philosophy, his killings, his engineering practice, his studio space. I wanted to know more. So that kept me coming back for two and the next decade. I suppose bigger and bigger workshops for more and more traps. He's a property tycoon, this guy. I admired his stamina in the first film. I mean, you want more from any kind of killer who is able to just hold still on the floor for that length of time in the shape of an X, which I don't know if in the first film there's this clue about X marks the spot and mm-hmm. I think it means the wall, but it, it means him. That's yes. what it actually means. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, not only Jigsaw, but really every aspect of these films There's just so much complexity to every little detail, both in terms of the design of them, but also the very dense mythology of these films. Every time is a a whole new experience and a whole new chance to uh, unravel the riddle and solve the puzzle. Yeah, and I should say, like, my attachment to these films is very much born of Charlie's Christmas tradition of watching a couple of Saw films every Christmas, which to begin with, I was kind of, you know, I loved the first one, but I was apathetic about joining in this Christmas tradition. But after a couple of Christmases spent in a lair with Jigsaw, I was hooked. I think seven years now, maybe eight, I have been watching two Saw films every Christmas day at the end of the day following my family Christmas. This didn't begin intentionally as a tradition, but very rapidly became one. And so we cycle through the franchise with a, I suppose, every four years we begin the cycle anew. Although now that there's a ninth film, that's going to mess up the cycle a little bit. And so to me, these films are part of the fabric of my year and indeed my my festive season. And it's lovely that they've sort of moved from the traditional Halloween spot because, of course, from 2004 onwards for a really long time, Halloween meant sore. Lionsgate turned them around, a new film 
every Halloween. Halloween, that's you're going to go see Saw. It was a lovely, a lovely ritual. Obviously, that hasn't happened for a while now. Well, yeah, but not to me. They're Christmas films. <laughs> yeah, I'm not interested in the is Die Hard a Christmas film debate. I will have the is the Saw franchise a series of Christmas films debate. And my answer is yes. Is it the green tint? Is that what makes them Christmassy? That's just another benefit. Yes, green and blood. So you've got the traditional festive red and green. Exactly. <laughs> All of uh, Jigsaw's baubles and trinkets. Billy would make a very nice ornament for a Christmas tree, Billy the Puppet. Yes, I actually have a Billy the Puppet Christmas tree ornament. So no, you don't. Of course do, you indeed. do. Oh, I love it. I mean, beyond Jigsaw himself, I think the mythology of the franchise is another reason to keep coming back to it because one of the things that I really love about it is that there's layers upon layers of plot twists and flashbacks and you almost expect them to reveal that part of it was in a dream and that someone's got amnesia. It's like, that's why I love it. And before we hack into the meat of what makes Saw 2 specifically as an individual film such a great time at the movies, I think we'd better recap what goes down in that particular film. So I'm going to say over to Professor Charlie Shackleton. He knows what's what. Thank you very much. Yes, so Saw 2, the second in the franchise, made incredibly quickly and released just a year after the mammoth box office success of the first film. Partly the way that was achieved was that the script for the film was originally an unrelated script called The Desperate, written by this film's writer-director Darren Lynn Bousman, who was only, I think, 25 when they made the film. And because they were so keen to get another Saw film out by that Halloween... They just took the script, gave it a few tweaks to make it a direct sequel to the first Saw film, and away they went. And I find that sort of amazing that it wasn't written as a Saw film because it's so about the connections with the first film and building on the mythology of the first film that it is hard to imagine it as anything else. Neither James Wan, Saw 1's director, or Lee Whannell were kind of available. They were working on something else at that time. So Lee came in and co-wrote, rewrote parts of the script to make it, make it more Saw. And Saw it is through and through. So we'll do a quick recap of the events of this film for anyone who hasn't seen it recently, or just anyone who has seen it and uh, needs a little bit of help. So Detective Eric Matthews, a new character, is pulled into the Jigsaw investigation after Jigsaw leaves a message for him at the scene of one of his traps. And before long, he's managed to locate Jigsaw's latest uh, and greatest workshop. There, the cops, much to my surprise, immediately find Jigsaw, John Kramer himself, and an array of surveillance monitors showing a house with eight people trapped inside it. Those people are Xavier Chavez, Jonas Singer, Addison Corday, Laura Hunter, Obi Tate, Gus Colyard, previous Jigsaw victim Amanda Young, and Detective Eric Matthews' teenage son, Daniel Matthews. More on them later. The group wake up and they find a tape warning them that they are breathing in a deadly nerve agent and must find antidotes that are hidden around the house. One of those antidotes is in a safe in the room there with them, and they're told that the combination is in the back of their minds. Something for them to think on. Detective Eric Matthews, meanwhile, begins a lengthy dialogue with Jigsaw himself, with John Kramer. Big chat scene, a sort of My Dinner with Andre thing that runs throughout the film. (laughs) (laughs) Dinner with Jigsaw. In a far corner of the workshop, while the other cops watch the surveillance monitors and also try and geolocate the origin of the surveillance feed to find the house with these people trapped inside it. Through this conversation, we learn a lot about Jigsaw's backstory and his motivations. We learn that he attempted suicide after his cancer diagnosis by driving off a cliff and survives that. He survived driving off a cliff. And this, for me, puts in perspective the fact that he often targets people who've attempted suicide. I think there's a bit of projection going on here because his claim is that he came out of this survival 
and had a renewed appreciation for life and wanted to teach other people to have the same appreciation. Oh, Jigsaw's trauma, we definitely need to discuss. Meanwhile, the group progressed through the house, encountering one trap after another, and we'll no doubt be covering these traps in further detail, but with each trap, one of their number is inevitably subjected to it. So Gus Colyard is immediately shot by a gun through a peephole after he tries to open a door he was told not to. Obby Tate crawls into a furnace in search of a couple of little antidotes and then gets trapped inside and dies. Amanda Young is thrown into a pit of syringes, and I'm sure we'll be talking more about that particular trap, a classic of the franchise. Meanwhile, Xavier Chavez realises that the numbers of the combination of the safe are written on the backs of their necks. It's in the back of your mind. (laughs) So he kills Jonas Singer for his number and then goes after the others to try and get theirs. Laura Hunter, meanwhile, just succumbs to the nerve gas. An inglorious ending for Laura Hunter there. While Addison Corday takes on a trap in which her hands are put into these sort of boxes with overlapping blades Mm. at the entrance points. Kind of like a finger trap deal where you go in easily, but oh, you're not coming out. We'll talk more about that one too, another classic for me. And finding her there trapped, Xavier Chavez simply reads the number from the back of her head and leaves her there to die. Meanwhile, back at the workshop, Detective Eric Matthews really has had enough of Jigsaw's shtick at this point and attacks him until Jigsaw agrees to take him to the house where his son and these other people are trapped. On the condition, John Kramer says, that they go alone. Detective Eric Matthews agrees and they they hop in the car and a, a swift little drive later, they're at the house. Meanwhile, the tech team has finally managed to identify the source of the surveillance feed and they also get in the car bit of cross-cutting here, everyone's on their way to the house. Amanda Young and Daniel Matthews, the son of Detective Eric Matthews, are by this point two of the only survivors left, and they escape the house through a trapdoor pursued by Xavier Chavez, who wants those numbers on the backs of their necks. They find themselves where, but in the bathroom from the first Saw film. Whoa, this old place. <gasps> Surrounded by the dead bodies of our old friends, Adam Stanhite, Zepp Hindle, and, of course, the foot of Dr. Lawrence Gordon. And the foot is so never funny, forget the foot. <laughs> waxy lying there. <laughs> yeah, it's just a waxy foot. I'm not sure how long it takes for a foot to get waxy like that. Yeah, I think, is it about a five-month time frame, something like that, on from the... For a waxy foot? No, not for a waxy foot. From <laughs> Between the events of the two films, I can't remember. Oh, Zepp's body's pretty decomposed at that point. Oh, so maybe longer than that. Okay, so Amanda and Daniel have made their way into the bathroom from the first film. They find these bodies. Xavier arrives and Amanda's like, well, what are you going to do? Because even if you get the numbers from the backs of our necks, there's one on the back of yours. He has a quick go trying to look at it in the mirrors, realises it's not possible, and then cuts the number out of the back of his neck with a knife quite gruesomely. He then makes to attack the pair of them, but is killed by Daniel Matthews, leaving him and Amanda Young safe in the bathroom. Meanwhile, Detective Eric Matthews arrives at the house with John Kramer and goes inside to find his son, but is surprised to find the place deserted. Hmm, curious. The other cops arrive at the source of the surveillance feed, only to find that it's a different house entirely. What? And that what they thought was a live video feed was in fact pre-recorded. The game has been over for hours and Daniel Matthews is alive and well in a safe back at the workshop. He was there the whole time. Classic Jigsaw. Because Jigsaw is a man of his word up to a certain point. So if he says the son is safe, he's both physically secure and well and also in a safe. And he loves a little bit of wordplay, doesn't he? He is a master of puns. Stepping inside the bathroom, Detective Eric Matthews is attacked and rendered unconscious. He wakes up with his own foot shackled 
to the pipe, the famous pipe, next to a cassette player, which reveals that Amanda Young was Jigsaw's accomplice all along. What? That woman from the house? Merely playing a victim of the trap to oversee events from within. Amanda Young appears at the door, and we get that classic Saw franchise catchphrase, game over. Classic. It is just a lovely twist. A lovely twist when it turns out Amanda's involved. And when you watch it back again as well, you notice lots of little details, like she doesn't cough. She's not been subjected to the nerve agent in the same way as the others she's not getting sick there's loads of little bits like that that you're like ah this does work it is delicious Mm. the ending of this film what i like as well is that this is the beginning of something that happens in every subsequent film now where the famous music that accompanies the twist banana banana oh it's turning into live and let die (laughs) (laughs) starts playing earlier and earlier in each subsequent film. So here we get at least 10 minutes of twist, where I think it was only maybe two or three in the previous film. And this is only going to get grander and greater as time goes on. And it's a lovely inversion as well of the unconventional thing in the first film is that you literally don't understand that the guy on the floor is the killer until the final closing moments of the film. Whereas in this one, they apprehend him right at the beginning and he hangs out having a chat for the whole film. Well, and it's a perfect callback to the first film as well, where the killer, or in this case, the accomplice to the killer is always in plain sight, always with you from the very beginning and you don't know until the very end. So they're always playing around with you. It's so true. I mean, you mentioned him already, Anna, as your reason that you keep coming back to this franchise. But Jigsaw, can we talk about Jigsaw? Because this is the film that really establishes him for the rest of the franchise. He's not actually in the first one very much, as we just said. 100%. I think it's one of the things that I always certainly forget about the first film because Jigsaw has become such a massive cultural icon. I forget that he's not that much in the first film. And here is where Jigsaw and Tobin Bell, who plays him beautifully, gets a lot more screen time and a lot more space to really talk about his process, his inspirations, why he's doing what he's doing and what he demands from his test subjects. And it's so beautifully rewatchable because once you know that Amanda is his accomplice and the person who is going to be ensuring the legacy of Jigsaw after John Kramer dies, you can see the dynamic between them reading it between the lines. And of course, it's going to get a lot more expanded in subsequent films. But he's a talkie killer, isn't he? Well, he says that he's not a murderer. He despises murderers. <laughs> Although that's arguably <laughs> up yeah, for the bait. I mean, we can talk about this. In the previous film, he did slash Danny Glover across the neck, which I would say is not the behaviour of someone who is not a murderer and despises murderers. But you can't expect consistency from the guy. He'd no. argue that was self-defence, I think. They're, they're coming mm. at him with guns. Right, um, but it's just like a gorgeous casual to his performance. I mean, as you say, he's talky, but he's not Hannibal Lecter showing off and showboating. He's not Freddy Krueger getting kind of campy with it. He's almost a super normal guy who just happens to be having a conversation about some bizarre stuff. A bit that they actually took out is when the, the SWAT team first burst into his lair at the start of two. Apparently, Tobin Bell, as Jigsaw, in the original cut of this, was just sitting there eating a bowl of Cheerios slowly <laughs> as they come towards him. You can still see the bowl when you rewatch Saw 2. His bowl of cereal is on the desk. But yeah, they had to cut that because it was just a little bit too funny to have Jigsaw eating Cheerios. That is the vibe, though. You can see he's having fun. I mean, we get to see him laugh a few times in this film, which is a rare sight otherwise, I think. He has a little giggle when he's telling Detective Eric Matthews that his son 
is going to be choking on his own blood in an hour or something. And it's an odd sight, but he actually pulls it off, Tobin Bell, the kind of devilish laugh. Yeah, without going full moustache-twirling villain in a cape, although I think he possibly is in a cape for... Well, sure, he's in a cape. He's not in a cape, isn't that like beautiful hooded black and red satin bathrobe? <laughs> I don't think he'd call it that. I think the point the point is he wears the cape, he doesn't let it wear him. <laughs> yeah. We also get a delightful little snatch of him laughing on one of the tapes at his own joke when he says finding the needle in the pit of needles will be like finding a needle in a haystack, and then he goes, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love people with a bit of respect for their own work. He's a very smug killer, isn't he, Jigsaw, though? He loves being the smartest person in the room. He loves it. He loves to sort of explain his philosophy. I mean, this is the film mm. that really sets up Jigsaw's philosophy, at least Jigsaw's philosophy as it would be understood for the next sort of few films. Maybe we should talk about that, recap what that is. What's Jigsaw's worldview? Yeah, I mean, he punishes people really for any kind of human failing in a way that he doesn't punish himself for them. Not to, like, get on the guy's back or anything, but, like, Donnie Wahlberg's crime in this film is that he's a bad father. And the argument given by Jigsaw is that he told off his son when his son got in trouble with the police. But then once his son goes missing, all of a sudden he wants to see him again. And Jigsaw sees this as a big hypocrisy. That if you're going to tell off your son, you should also be fine with them dying. (laughs) It's kind of the same as in the first film as well. Like, Carrie Elwes is taken to task for being a bad father. But you're not allowed a single lapse. That's the point, I think. I think Jigsaw's main obsession, though, what he aggressively punishes is the lack of willpower or the lack of consistency in people. He's like, well, why are you not better? If you're such a good cop, although we could argue whether Detective Eric Matthews is a good cop or not, but... If you're such a good cop or you think you are, why can't you apply that to your family as well? Why are you lacking in this part of your life and not in this other one? And I think like his logic, I think it is kind of flawed, but it reads like a really perverse self-help book when he talks about it. It's like, well, I was alone and I got diagnosed with terminal cancer and I attempted suicide and I survived and pull out a giant metallic rod out of my own stomach while I had terminal cancer. And so if I can do that, you can get out of this trap that I built for you. Of course you can survive if you want to. Are you as strong as me? Because this worked for me, so surely it will work for anyone else. And I think his priority is always the grand statement as opposed to the moral nitty-gritty. So, for instance, all the people trapped in the house realise that they've all been framed for crimes they didn't commit by Eric Matthews. Obviously, that's his sin, but they're all punished for it in a way that one might argue they've already kind of been punished by being sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit. But for Jigsaw, it's an opportunity to make a larger point. Mm. And that will become a theme as the films go on, that there's usually a kind of overarching moral lesson in his mind. I think what I like about Jigsaw, though, is that he is both very logical and at the same time illogical. He's not a sort of total maniac. I think that's why he's so intriguing as a horror Mm. villain, because it's very easy to write a leather face and it's like, this guy has a chainsaw and he's going to kill you. But that's not someone I really want to hear the backstory of. Whereas Jigsaw, because there's this evidence of a logical mind, a smart guy, a structural engineer, a genius trap designer, he becomes intriguing and the contradictions in his personality become very appealing, Mm. I think. Well, actually, one of my favourite things in this is the moment where Eric Matthews snaps Jigsaw's finger back and breaks his finger because suddenly you see him vulnerable 
And like he has flaws. Well, that's one of the intriguing things about Jigsaw as a villain is that he's physically not imposing. He's physically very vulnerable. He's an older man. He is riddled with disease. He's weak and he's weakened in, in a physical state. But his mind is perverse in a way. There's a perverse logic to everything that he says, but he can commandeer room. He is incredibly smart and also very capable of seeing through people and seeing their fears and the things that they will be most afraid of, whether that's personal or information that he can use in the design of the traps. But I think it's a similar type of appeal that you mentioned Hannibal Lecter before, Catherine, in that we are really intrigued by these villains who are imposing and scary because of the way that they think and the way that they can seduce us with their words. In the case of Jigsaw, also wordplay and engineering savvy. Not because they have a chainsaw or because they have a machete and they're just going to tear you into pieces. It's like they will mess around with your head and that is a lot more damaging than any kind of physical trauma that he can put you through, as evidenced really by Amanda Young. Absolutely. And I think there are lots of different ways that they could have gone with this sequel, obviously, based on the first one. There's so many different directions you could take a franchise like this. But Saw 2 is really the film where they start to establish Everything that's going to be important for the rest of the franchise. The language of Saw is developed. The tropes of Saw come to be solidified into the sort of things we're going to look out for every instalment of this horror franchise to come. Do you have any personal faves? I mean, as we talked about on the last episode, a lot of the what become the key tropes of the franchise really are there in the first film, but they're very much codified here. And what's ironed out is all the stuff that's only going to get in the way of that. One of my favorite examples of this is that there's a moment in the first film, which you kind of think nothing of if you're watching that film in isolation, but is very funny in the context of the other films, where the way that they realize that time is important is because there's a clock on the wall in the bathroom that's noticeably like brand new and therefore has been put there. In the context of the later films, it's like, Jigsaw's not going to put a brand new clock in there. He wouldn't even have a brand new clock. Everything he owns looks like it survived a shipwreck 300 (laughs) years ago. The idea that he'd put like this Ikea clock in a bathroom is bonkers by the time you get to films two, three, four. And here, indeed, everything that's in this house looks awful and in the best possible way. I mean, there's not a single frame of this film that isn't so recognisably a sore film, both in terms of the cinematography but mainly just the production design. I mean, the house, the house that looks like the worst student house ever just (laughs) is this incredible construction of terrible, grimy domesticity. I mean, I remember the walls as being luridly green. I'm not sure if that's the filter of sort or if they actually also had walls that are painted a lurid green, but you're right. The mood board of saw that I guess we (laughs) could call it has come into full effect by this film. (laughs) The Pinterest board of saw, which I'm going to make as soon as we're off this podcast. Yeah, everything seems to be coated in a thin layer of Mm. something, as in the first film. We needn't get into what. (laughs) And there's this new metal vibe as well, which is very of the time. You sort of almost see it in some of the casting. Xavier Chavez, he's sort of the antagonist of the people trying to escape Mm. from the traps. And he's this big dude with tattoos and real kind of a buzz cut. He absolutely looks like he could have been in System of a Down or (laughs) Sepultura or one of those bands that was knocking around at the time. 
It absolutely has that vibe. And it's so particular of that era as well, of that era of MTV, of new metal bands and their particular style of music videos. And it's not surprising that the director of Saw 2 used to be a music video director as well. So there is, I think, a certain sensibility that he brings to the film as well. And it kind of falls in line with the particular new metal aesthetic that was happening with some commercial horror films that were coming out around this time. Some more successful than others, but visually, I think genuinely really, really interesting. And I'm thinking specifically of the Underworld franchise or even Queen of the Damned, which is the extremely new metal follow up to Interview with a Vampire. As we touched on earlier, of course, this is also where they really realize it's all going to be about those last 15 minutes and really making people happy with it all coming together. I mean, the film and all the subsequent films is such a puzzle that solving it in a satisfying way and you can just imagine like the audience sitting there on opening night waiting for what's going to be the big rug pull this time and I think they really deliver it with Saw 2 I mean that sequence that goes on and on where you find out that there's been this play with time on top of all of the additional twists I mean my favorite one is when they reveal that there's been a kind of Silence of the Lambs thing going on and the two timelines aren't happening at the same time it's revealed with a theatrical cloak being pulled from a stack of VHS players, <laughs> which is the most like perfectly 2005 reveal imaginable and just still gives me tingles to think about. I think Darren Limbalsman is very into magic tricks as well, apparently. I think we see it in that moment with the literal pulling of the cloak off the VHS players. And it just wouldn't be an episode of Seeing Saw without a definitive ruling on the best trap in this particular film. There are loads to choose from, obviously. You've got your death mask Venus flytrap thing at the start of the film. There's an electrified staircase within the nerve gas house. We've got the antidote safe room. We've got the magnum eye hole. That's the gun behind the door. We've got the oven furnace thing that somebody gets cooked in. We've got, of course, the iconic needle pit, the razor box with the hands. And then I guess Eric's test overall and then ending up in the bathroom is kind of another trap. So, Anna, for you, which of these contenders is a potential winner of Jigsaw's Trap Race? Okay, so I've got a controversial double answer. My personal favourite is the Razor Box, which is the demise of Addison Corday. But I think the best trap is the Needle Pit. It has to be. We've got to come to the razor box first. I want to hear why that's your personal fave. Because as I was rewatching the film, I realized, you know what? There was a way for her to get out of it, but she was too nervous or afraid to see it. Like she could have gotten out of it if she'd just used one arm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, I think a crucial element of a good trap is that there be a way to escape mm -hmm. it. I'm with Jigsaw on that one. This one feels like really clever. Yet yeah, you could have absolutely gotten out of that one if you just thought about it a bit longer. And the death is just excruciatingly slow and she gets laughed at as well to add insult to injury. I don't think we even see her die, do we? We just assume she bleeds out in the boxes. Yeah. I like to think she got out and had a happy life after the film ended. Lovely. I love that. For me, yeah, I agree. I think it's between these two. I mean, it's a good series of traps inside the house. I think we can write off all the ones that are just like little plot points mm. that aren't really like will they won't they like the gun behind the door i guess that's another obvious one that's more of a booby trap than yeah a, than i mean a trap. let's just talk about the main trap so obviously you have the furnace in which obby tate dies i think for me that one it's not clear enough how he would get out there's a mm. valve inside the furnace if he crosses the flames he can open the valve and get out so if he's willing to sacrifice being burned a bit 
it's just confu- there's a lot of flames going on. It's hard to really understand the dynamic happening within the furnace. I agree with you, Anna. The big two in terms of like really what makes a good trap are the razor box and the needle pit. Like you say, because you can sort of imagine how you would approach it. Mm. You know, pushing the blades up with one hand while you pop the hand through with the other, trying to grab the thing. I'm doing it now. Listeners can't see. But I... Charlie's got his hands in an invisible theoretical box. (laughs) My point is I think I could do it. And I think that's really when the traps get good or when Mm. you start to get a bit cocky and you're like... Well, it's it's the basic empathy of horror films. And one of the things that kind of, again, to answer the very first question at the start of this episode is like, what keeps you coming back to the Saw films? It's because you, it's so easy to start imagining and putting yourself into these characters' shoes and thinking, well, what would I do in these situations? Or more gruesomely, <laughs> how could I get out of this trap? Or could I? Yeah, fully that. And I mean, I'm not going to lie, there's stuff in the later films where my answer is, I wouldn't. I would just die immediately in the least painful way possible. (laughs) Which they also never do. But it would be interesting to see them do that sometimes. Just go, (laughs) I guess this is it then. I'm checking out. (laughs) So the needle pit, the other one you mentioned, Mm. I think could in another parallel saw universe could be my all time favorite saw trap. Because if you're imagining how you would approach it, what's more fun than that? Like, how do you climb in the pit? while getting pricked by as few needles as possible? Could you try and kind of push against the sides to lower yourself down slowly? It's like an agonizing thought process. And the only reason I can't pick it is that the film denies us that scene. He just chucks Amanda in. Okay, so I have a spanner to throw into the works here. Mm-hmm. Into the pit of needles. To throw into into the, pit. the pit of needles, yes. I think that trap, even though the film states that it is intended for Xavier, it's really for Amanda. Ooh. And I think it's because Jigsaw does not leave anything up to chance. And also Jigsaw has some very severe trust issues. The fact that he has Amanda as his accomplice and the person who's going to continue his legacy and his work or whatever, I don't think he would give up that level of power that easily. I think he is quite sadistic and constantly needs to test people. And who would he test more than his second in command? than Amanda. And also, it really fits in well with her character and the way that he, quote-unquote, cured her the first time in the first film, where she was a drug addict, and he surviving Jigsaw's trap as the thing that gave her the willpower to get over her addiction. We all know this. This is like another test. It's another test of loyalty to him. So actually, I think the needle pit was always meant for Amanda. I think that's a good argument. I mean, for what it's worth, we are told that Xavier Chavez was a drug dealer. So there is a notional connection there. It's a two for one. But yes, as Jigsaw goes on to say in a subsequent film that calls back to this very moment, that if you understand the human mind, then nothing is left up to chance. He never leaves things up to chance. Just before we make the decision, we mentioned it briefly in the rundown at the beginning, but the death mask, the, Ooh, the, yeah. the Venus The Venus flytrap. Fly I was going to pitch that as a potential winner because it's exactly the sort of thing that you would go into the film maybe having seen in a trailer, maybe having discussed by the cast in a bit of marketing. It's, it's like one of the trademarks of a soft film. Saw trap. And it's also the inversion of the bear trap from the previous episode. So it's like they've gone, okay, the bear trap was very cool. That rips your jaw apart. So we need something sort of in that vein. This is a, a Venus flytrap thing with nails all over it that will close over your head. And for me, the thing that's the coup de grace, the cherry on a disgusting Sunday, is the key behind the guy's mm. eye. So... This guy in the trap has to dig out his own eye 
in order to get at a key that will release the trap. And he fails. But technically, it's doable. So it passes that aspect of classic traps for me. But it's also so squishy and disgusting. And like under it's, it's the one that I would least want to do is to dig for a key behind my own eye in order to release a trap on my head that was going to shut on it. And obviously, the guy fails and gets his head popped. When you say the guy, we are talking about police informant Michael Marks. Police informant Michael Marks, yes. I would, I think be the same as police informant Michael Marks and end up with a smashed head. I think you're right. It's definitely a partner piece to the reverse bear trap or potentially a solution if you've been through the reverse bear trap because this is the one that puts your jaw back together. (laughs) But superior to that trap, I think, yes, it requires a a self-sacrifice. Rather than just cutting someone else open, it requires doing something very, very grim and grisly. So have I won either of you over because... What we're then going to do is debate whether the winning trap from Saw 1 is better than the winning trap from Saw 2. And that will go through to the next round of this trap race. I don't know. I'm still with the needle pin. You're on the needle pit now. I thought you said your personal favourite with the razor box. No, but I think the needle pit is a better one. Because I think you've pulled me around to the razor box. Oh my God, we have a standoff here. There's something so beautiful about the simplicity of the razor box that it looked like it's Okay, I'm going to go over to Charlie's camp. I'm going to pick the razor box. Well, so razor box it is. And now we need to decide which is better between the razor box and the bathroom that we decided was the winning trap from Saw 1 in the last episode. So which is a better trap? Being shackled to a rusty old pipe with a saw and you've got to saw your foot off or the razor box, which you could escape by putting your hand in there and being a bit smart about it. I think for me it's Razorbox because I think the the terms of it are very clear and it's very straightforward. You can imagine how you would approach it. The bathroom is tied up in a lot of baggage with the kids being held hostage and all the other stuff. Razorbox, that's a great little condensed trap. I'm going to have to go with the Razorbox because it's just simpler and if you figure it out quickly enough, you can get out. It's a lot more efficient. Well, I was going to go for the bathroom, but I'm irrelevant now because you guys have ganged up on me with the razor box. So <laughs> it's just all about the razor box for us. We just we... it's all about efficiency. So razor box has it. The winner so far of Jigsaw's trap race and going through to round three is the razor box from Saw Two. What have we got in store in the next episode, Charlie? Can you give us a quick pricey of Saw Three? Yes. Well, it's Jigsaw's last hurrah. As it were, we spend a lot more time with Jigsaw. It's the last time he'll really be the central antagonist of the film. And it's one of the best. You know, we've got a lot of good traps coming up. We've got some great deepening of the mythology of the films and some good new characters as well. Beautiful. Any particular horror highlights from you, Anna, coming up in Saw 3? Well, I think the best horror highlight is psychological. Specifically, it's the psychology of my favourite Amanda Young. Her hopes, her dreams, her fears, her ambitions, as the new jokes are, potentially. And a reminder that if you've enjoyed this episode, do get yourself along to Spiral from the Book of Saw out May 14th or May 17th if you're in the UK. We can't wait to see what game is afoot this time. Thanks so much for listening and please remember to rate, review and never make any assumptions about the time frame or location in which a given game is playing out. 
Seeing Saw, the official Spiral podcast, is a Little Dot Studios production for Lionsgate. The show is hosted by Catherine Bray, Anna Bogutskaya and Charlie Shackleton. It's produced by Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel with production support from Ellie Aitken. And we are edited by Content is Queen. Anna, I think, look around. Oh no. We might be in a trivia trap. Yes, you are back in my trivia trap, Charlie and Anna. This week's piece of fiendish trivia is that while shooting the needle pit scene, apparently a handful of real needles fell into the pit, necessitating the, I think, comic image of somebody searching through a pile of needles to find the needle in the needle stack. <laughs> <laughs>